0: Open please to Acts chapter four, uh, 13, excuse me, verses 4 through 12. Acts 13, verses 4 through 12. I'd like to read that passage of Scripture, and then we will pray and study the Word of God together. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus, where they arrived at Salamis. They proclaimed the Word of God in the Jewish synagogue. John was with them. As their helper, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is with great joy that we come together today to worship you. to give you honor, to glorify you. Thank you that we can do that in so many ways. We can do that by praising you through these great songs of worship. We can do that as we minister to those around us, whether it's here in the auditorium informally, Or formally in the greenhouse or the junior senior high or in a small group we may be part of thank you that we can serve you and we worship you by serving you thank you that we can worship you by honoring your word by studying your word by giving attention to it by letting it do its work in our lives Thank you that it can change us in the deepest parts. Thank you it can change, that it can change. Your word can change us, the direction of our lives. It can change the path that we're on when we're on the wrong path. Thank you that your word can straighten out errant theology. Thank you that your word can train us to live righteously and to serve those around us always lord we want to thank you for your son the lord jesus and his willingness to take our place on the cross of calvary to bear our sins in his innocent body so that by putting our faith in him we can have eternal life abundant life now and life with you forever we can pass from death to life never to be concerned about death again for it has been conquered by our Savior and to be a part of your family. Guide us, Lord, as we study your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a saying that goes something like this, the only thing that's constant is change. That's right. The only thing that's constant Is change. The story of Acts chapter 13 is a story of change. We're going to begin to see some major changes in Acts chapter 13 that will continue through the rest of the book of Acts through Acts chapter 28. A couple of the changes that we will see is that the church will turn from the Jewish mission to a Gentile mission. Primarily, the church has been ministering to reaching out to Jews before Acts chapter 13. From Acts chapter 13 on, the emphasis will become reaching out to the Gentiles. We're going to see a change from the leadership of Barnabas to the leadership of Paul. And we'll we'll note that and point that out as we go through. These verses. We're going to see a change in the name that Paul is called by from Saul to Paul. And we'll talk about why he would change his name and why that is important and is important to you and to me. Those are just some of the changes that we will see as we go through Acts 13. One writer pointed out four things that are significant about chapter 13 verses 4 to 12 number 1 the first significant thing about the passage before us this morning is that it makes it marks rather the beginning of Paul's leadership it marks the beginning of Paul's leadership up to this point Barnabas has been the leader of the team. And we're going to see a transition begin to happen in Acts 13 as Paul becomes the leader of the team. And we see Barnabas's reaction to that. The second significant thing that the writer pointed out is from this point on, ministry took on a decided, takes on a decidedly Gentile slant. From this point on in the book of Acts, ministry, ministry takes on a decidedly Gentile slant. The third significant thing that we're seeing in this passage this morning is the blinding of Elimus. The blinding of Elimus called a sorcerer and a false prophet in our passage. His blindest blinding pictured the judicial blinding of Israel as Israel turns away from its messiah and god temporarily judicially blinding israel until the time when he will reconstitute them in the tribulation and the millennium and they'll once become again become the center of his attention during this time we are in the church age and god works in and through the church in and through the church the fourth significant thing we see in here is we see very clearly the transitional nature of the book of Acts in that Gentiles become the primary object of the gospel. The Gentiles become the primary object of the gospel while God temporarily turns from the Jews and so judges them. So change is the key word of our passage this morning there is another thing that a couple of other things we want to see in acts chapter 13 we've already been talking over the last couple of weeks about how this these passages point out that it is the holy spirit who is directing the church it's not the cleverness of the church leaders it's not their ability to put together a plan a purpose uh, plan uh to guide the ministry, rather they are responding to the Holy Spirit. We'll say a little more about that in a moment. But something new in today's passage that I want you to notice is that previously in the book of Acts, we've seen how the church has been victorious over opposition from the civil government. Previously in the book of Acts, we've seen how the church has been victorious over religious opposition now in today's passage we're going to see and this is going to be new in uh, this part of the book of Acts we're going to see that the church is victorious over spiritual opposition to the gospel satanic opposition to the gospel satanic Satan openly opposes the gospel through Elimus, the sorcerer and false prophet, in this passage this morning. And we'll see not only is the church victorious over government, not only is the church victorious over religious opposition, but the church is also victorious over satanic spiritual opposition. So those are some of the things that we'll see as we go through here. Look with me at chapter 13 and verse 4. The two of them, and uh, if you read the previous couple of verses, you realize that the two of them refers to Barnabas and Saul. The two of them, Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Now, do you see that emphasis again? Do you see that emphasis upon the sovereignty of God? Do you see that emphasis upon the fact that the church is responding to what the Holy Spirit is doing? They are being sent by the Holy Spirit. Not sent on their way by the church. The church recognized what the Holy Spirit was doing. The church agreed with what the Holy Spirit was doing. But what we see here is the two of them are sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. That is, they are directed by, sent forth by the Holy Spirit. The point, as one writer pointed out, is that Luke was emphasizing the divine initiative. Please don't miss that emphasis because it's so important. Luke was emphasizing the divine initiative. The writer goes on to say the role of the church is to perceive this initiative, not create it. That is, the role of the church is to perceive what God's doing and then follow it. Isn't that a unique concept? The role of a church is to perceive what God is doing and then to follow what God is doing. Not we sit down and make our little plans and then say, God, here are our plans, bless them. That's the way it usually works. The role of the church, as the writer said, is to perceive this initiative, not create it. You see, the Holy Spirit was the real inspirer and director of this mission the holy spirit was the real inspirer and director of this mission please don't miss that point it's crucial it's crucial here well what is the church's part then what did we see the church at Antioch doing what was their part what is our part in sending forth those who God separates for a ministry What is the church's part? Well, we see three things here in the church at Antioch. Number one, the church at Antioch confirmed the call. They didn't initiate the call. God the Holy Spirit initiated the call, but the church at Antioch confirmed the call. The church at Antioch identified with God's purposes. Remember last week we said there were a half million people in Antioch that needed Christ, and yet the Holy Spirit said, I want you to send two of your choicest servants out. Wait a second, Lord. How are we going to reach the half million? But the church not only confirms the call, the church identifies with God's purposes. The church identifies with God's purposes. The third thing we see here in the church at Antioch is that the church releases those whom God has called for service. The church releases them. I I can imagine it was tough for the church at Antioch to release these two. Think about it. Barnabas and Saul, two of the finest ministers there, two-fifths of the leadership team, and the church has to release them to go out. So the church, what's the role of the church that confirms the call, identifies with God's purposes, releases His ministers for service. But again, don't miss this. It's who that sends them? Is that a tough question? The Holy Spirit sends them. That's That's the key here. All right, let's look at what else we have here. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Now, Seleucia was the seaport of Antioch. It was the seaport of Antioch. It was 16 miles from Antioch. It was the port city for Antioch. And it was 60 miles from Cyprus. So uh, the team goes down to the port of Antioch uh, goes down to Seleucia, and um, they sailed from there to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus, as you know, uh, was the homeland of Barnabas. Cyprus was the homeland of Barnabas. We had uh, encountered that earlier in the book of Acts. as uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 36. The island of Cyprus was the third largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's the third largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. It is a hundred, and in case you care about this, it's 148 miles long and 18 to 20 miles wide. 148 miles long, 18 to 20 miles wide. It was famous for copper mining and it was famous for shipbuilding. That's, that's what Cyprus was famous for. And as we know, it's the homeland of Barnabas. It was predominantly Greek but had a large Jewish population. It was predominantly Greek, but had a large Jewish population. Now, please notice that at this point, Barnabas appears to be the leader of the, of the group. He appears to be the leader of the party. Uh, we see that in 13.2, 13.7, 11.26, 11.30, 12.25. All of those passages, Barnabas' name comes first. Why? He's the leader of the team. So it's Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. But we're going to begin to see in our passage this morning in chapter 13, verses 4-12, to that that begins to reverse. We see Paul taking the initiative. We see Paul becoming the leader. And we're going to see, starting in verse 14, that from Paphos, Paul and his companions... (laughs) Barnabas doesn't even rate his name there. Paul and his companions. We're going to see increasingly the change from Barnabas as leader of the team to Paul as leader of the team. Now, I tell you, that's just another reason to like Barnabas. That's just another reason to like Barnabas. Barnabas was the kind of leader who could take the position of leader when God called him to do that, but could also take the position of follower when God called him to do that. No leader is a great leader who can't also be a good follower. No leader is a great leader who can't also be a good follower. And Barnabas could lead when God called him to, he could follow when God called him to. And it says so much about him. You, You know how it is with us, we grasp onto our roles, don't we? It's so hard to let go. But Barnabas could see what God was doing. Barnabas wanted what God wanted. And so as God makes a change and Paul becomes the leader, Barnabas shows us some some great uh, uh, skills here. Let me, I I, I want to take a little time for this. Uh, We didn't do this in the first service, but there are four things we see here uh, in this change from Barnabas' leadership to Paul's leadership. Uh, Number one, I've already said it, no one can be a great leader who can also be a follower. Number two, we must not hold to status or position so tightly that God cannot make a change. We must not hold on to status or position so tightly that God cannot make a change. Number three, if God does make a change, we must be able to remain in the shadows and still be supportive. If God does make a change, we need to be able to stay in the shadows and still be supportive. Number four, it's a mark of leadership that we see here in Barnabas that we can keep an eye on the big picture of what God is trying to do and not just grasp for our own desires. It's a mark of leadership that we can keep an eye on the big picture of what God is trying to do and not just grasp for our own picture. That's just a couple of things about Barnabas. I'm impressed by what he did. I'm impressed by what he allowed God to do in his life. Verse 5, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Well, Salamis was the largest city on the eastern side of Cyprus. It was a thriving commercial center. It was the most important city on the island and so they immediately go and they visit a synagogue. Now, by the way, that becomes Paul's modus operandi. That's what Paul did when he would come into a new city, and we are going to see this over and over and over again in the book of Acts. When they come into a new city, the first place they would go to would be the what? The synagogue. The first place they would go would be to the synagogue. The synagogue. That was Paul's strategy. He outlines it in Romans 1.16. It's illustrated in Acts 13.46, 17.2, 18.4, 18.19, and 19.8. That was Paul's strategy. Reach out to them. There would be people there familiar with the Old Testament. There would be people there understanding the truths about the Messiah. Paul could reach out to them. They were a good place. That were a good place for the team to begin to tell them about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Secondly, synagogues usually had pretty good populations of Gentiles. Gentiles familiar with the Old Testament. Gentiles who would be anticipating the coming of Messiah. And so, Not only was it a place to go to begin with people who understood the Old Testament, but it was a place to go to make connections with Gentiles. Connections with Gentiles. The text tells us that John was with them as a helper. That's a reference to John Mark. A reference to John Mark. He was their helper. By the way, Colossians 4.10 tells us that he was a cousin to Barnabas. So there was a, a relationship there. And he was their helper. The word helper is an interesting word. The word helper is used in the scripture. That's translated helper here is used in the scripture of a synagogue attendant who cared for the Old Testament strolls, uh, scrolls. There were attendants in the synagogue who took care of the scrolls of the Old Testament. The scrolls that would be used in worship each Sabbath day. So John Mark takes the place of helper here. Many believe that he was, uh, may have carried the scripture scrolls for Barnabas and Paul. He may have carried the scripture scrolls for Barnabas and Paul. More importantly, already the sayings of Jesus were being compiled and and put in a scroll. More importantly, John Mark would be carrying the scrolls that would have the sayings of Jesus. So, Some believe that what it means when it calls him a helper is he cared and carried the scriptural scrolls and carried the sayings of Jesus. Many believe that he may have instructed new converts and assisted Barnabas and Paul in baptisms. That may have been his role. One writer said, John Mark was an eyewitness Unlike Barnabas and Saul of Jesus' life and death. John Mark was an eyewitness of Jesus' life and death. Paul wasn't, Barnabas wasn't, but John Mark was. The writer goes on to say he was raised in a godly home. His mother's house was a gathering place for Christians in Jerusalem. Later, he authored the Gospel of... Yes. Why would you be afraid to say his name is John Mark? What gospel would you think? Well, you could have said John, I guess. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) You're just way ahead of me, that's all. Uh, The gospel of Mark. Let's let's be clear on that. He authored the gospel of Mark. Uh, His his home was uh, his mother's house. His home was a center for the church. And so he seems to be perfect for this role. And we're going to see later on, it's almost inexplicable that he abandons them. There are probably reasons for that. We'll get into that the next time we look at the book of Acts. We'll get into the reasons for his abandoning the team. So, following the strategy, they went to the synagogue. John, Mark is their helper. In verses 6 and 7, we read this, they traveled throughout the whole island. They they landed on the east side of the island. They traveled through the island to the west. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus? So there's a lot of information here. Uh, they they uh, go a hundred miles to a hundred miles west of Salamis to Paphos, which was the capital city and the seat of the provincial government. Paphos was the capital city and the seat of the provincial government. It was also sadly the center of the worship of Venus, which was licentious and morally corrupt. It was licentious and morally corrupt. Now, before we meet the political leadership, we meet with a, up with a, a Jewish practitioner of magic arts, He's a part of the entourage of Sergius Paulus, who is the leader of Cyprus. His name is Bar-Jesus, which literally means son of Jesus. And Jesus is Greek for Hebrew Joshua, which means God saves. So his name was son of salvation. But as we will see as we go through here, he is anything but a son of salvation. In fact, Satan uses him in a mighty way to prevent Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, to prevent him from coming to faith. So we see this sorcerer, Bar-Jesus. He's Take note that he's Jewish. He's not pagan. He's a Jewish sorcerer. One writer called him a demon-energized occultist. Well, we could spend a lot of time just unpacking that. But he is a demon-energized occultist. He's an occultist, and behind his sorcery, behind his magic, behind his tricks, was Satan, who energized him. That's who we're talking about here with Bar-Jesus. He was a practitioner of magic, a practitioner, practitioner of quackery, tricks done by the power of Satan. Now, this should be a warning to every believer. Do we understand that Satan has power to mimic the miracles of God? Satan has power to mimic the miracles of God. That's got to be a warning to us. That's got to be a warning to us today when we see people who claim miraculous gifts. I want you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, and now the lawless one is a reference to the Antichrist. This section of 2 Thessalonians has to do with the tribulation period and the coming of the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be in accordance with the works of Satan displayed. Now this is crucial. How will you and I, well, if we won't be there, but because we'll be raptured, but those who are alive at the time of the tribulation, how will they see these works of Satan's displayed? Paul tells us they'll be displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Satan can mimic God's miracles. Satan can mimic God's signs. Satan can mimic God's wonders that's a warning that's a warning that's a warning to you and me in the church age that's a warning to those in the tribulation age that's a warning that Satan can mimic those things he can mimic miracles mimic signs miracles mimic miracles wonders He did tricks by the power of Satan. And the whole intent of the trick, the whole intent of the counterfeit miracles was to keep Sergius Paulus from faith and to keep others from faith. And Satan is still doing that. If you want to read a great book, I was going to share some from it, but I'm rapidly uh, running out of my time. So uh, there's a great book, Entitled and the word came with power by Joanne Shetler. And the word came with power. It's a wonderful book. Joanne Shetler was a missionary, a single lady. Uh, she went with another single lady to a Stone Age tri- tribe in the Philippines, much braver than I, me, you can decide. Kathy will tell me later, my English teacher (laughs) wife. (laughs) She's brave. She was quite brave. She went to the Stone Age tribe in the Philippines along with her partner. Her partner, uh, after a few years there, uh, returned home to be married. And Joanne stayed there on her own by herself in the Stone Age tribe. And long story short, she introduced the alphabet to them reduced their language to writing, and then translated the word of God. And there's a church there. But if you wanna read about Satan's power and his counterfeits and what he does to people, and the word came with power is a, I see, Satan often operates differently in parts of the world like ours, developed parts of the world than he does in the undeveloped world. He shows himself more clearly. He's much more subtle here. He's much more subtle here. But in the undeveloped parts of the world, he shows himself very clearly. If you wanna read a great example of a modern day Elimus Bar-Jesus, read, and the word came with power. Okay. Enough of that. <laughs> the point is that Satan does counterfeit miracles and signs and wonders, and you and I ought to be warned. You, you and I ought to be warned. Well, he was part of Sergius Paulus' entourage, and the proconsul. Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the Word of God. Now, he wanted, I think that he personally wanted to hear the Word of God, but he also, as part of his duties, was responsible for the religions he allowed on the island. He was responsible for the religions he allowed on the island. So, therefore, it would be his duty to listen to somebody and to to, uh, somebody bringing a new religion onto the island and decide if it was okay to do that or not. And so I think he was personally interested, but I think it also it was an oth- official inquiry to ex- examine this message, this new religion. Well, verse 10 or excuse me, verse 9, then Saul, who was also called Paul. Now, interestingly enough, from this point forward, Paul uses the name Paul rather than Saul. Now, what's significant about that? Well, Saul is his Hebrew name. Saul is his Hebrew name. Scholars don't necessarily believe that God changed his name, but that Saul changed his name. His Hebrew name was Saul. Now, hang with me here. But his Greek or Roman name was what? Paul. Who was he the apostle to? The Gentiles. The Gentiles, not the Jews. So therefore, Paul begins to use the name that they would identify with. The name Paul, which is his Greek or Roman name, instead of the name Saul, which is his Jewish name, Hebrew name. Therefore, Paul uses the name that would be a point of connection with those he is reaching out to. Well, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that Paul, remember he, in, in another place he says, I, I do all things possible that I might reach out to all people. I become all things to all men. The change in name reflects the change in the focus of the ministry The focus was now to be to Gentiles. And so the change in Paul's name reflects the change in the focus of that ministry. I think it also illustrates a principle of ministry or a principle of evangelism that you and I ought to be aware of today and following today. And that is when you and I are witnessing, when you and I are sharing with unbelievers who reject our message, we need to understand that before that, there's a point of contact with them. We're not this great Christian warrior who's going to tell you what the truth is. We're going to tell them the truth. But before we do that, I think we need to understand that we can identify with them. Those unbelievers that you and I talk to, many of them are Parents. You know one thing that's common about parents, whether they're believers or unbelievers, they care about their kids. They want the best for their kids. You have a, if you have children and you're talking to somebody who's a parent, you have a point of contact with that person. You want the best for your children. They want the best for their children. It is a place to begin. Instead, we pull out the four laws. Read this. The people we're talking to are husbands, wives, the people we talk to are coworkers. We share many common traits with the unbelievers around us. And yet, it seems that when it comes to witness, we ignore them. We ignore them. So we can unload the gospel on them. No, I'm exaggerating, okay? You you get it? I know we need to share the gospel with those around us. But before we hammer them with the gospel, can we say, where do your kids go to school? I think we see that in Paul changing the name he used from Saul to Paul. Well, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit looked straight at Elimus and said, You're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the law? There are four things that Paul is saying here. Number one, rather than being a son of Jesus, a son of salvation... Elimus is a son, a weos in Greek, a child of the devil. He's a child of the devil. Number two, Paul said he's an enemy of everything that is right. That word right is the word righteousness. Elimus was an enemy of everything righteous. Number three, Paul said he was full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. One writer explained deceit and trickery as unscrupulous mischief. Words work, rather, that easily deceives. He was deceiving people and he was deceiving Sergius Paulus to keep Sergius Paulus from faith in Jesus Christ. And the fourth thing is he was preventing the right ways of the Lord. Sorcery had led him to mix error with truth. Sorcery had led him into all kinds of deceptions of others and distortion of the truth. But you know what? Just like opposition from the government, just civil government, just like opposition from our religious leader's The church is victorious over satanic opposition. By the way, it's the fourth time in the book of Acts that the church is victorious in its clashes over the occult. The first time was Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. The second time is our passage this morning. The third time is the servant girl that Paul deals with in Acts 16, and the fourth time are the seven sons of Siva in Acts 19. But the point is this, the church is victorious. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. In verse 11, you're going to be blind and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He, Elimus, was judged with temporary blindness intended by Paul to have the same effect that his own blindness had had about him in Acts chapter 9 when he came to faith. Remember he was struck blind? It was a temporary blindness. You see, Elimus was already in spiritual darkness. Now he's in physical darkness. Now he's in physical darkness as well. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Three things real quickly. Unless, your eyes, unless you have eyes to see, you and I have eyes to see, there is no glory in a cross. Unless you and I have eyes to see, the cross is nothing but an instrument of torture. Not an instrument where our Savior gave us a way to eternal life. Unless we have eyes to see, there's no glory in humility. Unless we have eyes to see, there's no glory in servanthood. Well, the result is verse 12. When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the miraculous. I hope you didn't close your Bible yet. We are at the end. Is that what he was amazed at? He is raised, amazed at the miraculous blinding of Elimus. Is that what he was amazed at? Is that what brought him to faith? No! Look at it! Look at the text! When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at what? The teaching about the Lord. It was the teaching about the Lord that amazed him. It was the teaching about the Lord that brought him the faith. It wasn't the miracle. Miracles were secondary to the Gospel. Miracles confirmed the message and the messenger. Miracles were not just to Oppress people, but to demonstrate God's power. But Sergius Paulus came to faith, not because of the miracle that had happened, but because he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, do you you know what a glorious Lord we have? I have been reading, and, and you'll think I'm crazy, but you probably already do, so it's okay. Uh, I've been reading a devotional about Christmas. What? It's only November 14th. What are you doing reading? uh, uh, Well, I want to prepare myself. I want to prepare myself for various reasons as part of my ministry, but I want to prepare my own heart for what is about to occur. Do you know What an amazing story we have. Do you know what an amazing Lord we have? I want you to think about this. I want you to think about, no no wonder Sergius Paulus was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Think about the Lord we have who willingly left the glories of heaven, second person of the Godhead, and when he was called by the Father to come to earth and take himself upon human flesh and become the God-man, he didn't grasp his position. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. But he willingly left heaven's glories, took upon himself human flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Born to Mary... The God-man, because he had to die. What a story that is. No miracle can compare to that. To the kind of Savior that you and I have. Who would do that for us. And that's what changed Sergius Paulus' life. And if you're a believer, you're going to see him in heaven. Ask him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for so great a Savior. Help us, Lord, to realize the wonder and uniqueness of our loving Savior who willingly went to Calvary's cross and bore our sins in his innocent body. And if there's even one here who has never put their faith in him, I pray that they wouldn't let another minute go by without doing business with you. In Jesus' name.